1: Welcome to episode 49 of the History of Skipton with me, Ian Lockwood, author of the book The History of Skipton. In 1542, Henry Clifford, the first Earl of Cumberland and eleventh Lord of Skipton Castle, died. He had put the Cliffords into the top rank of the English aristocracy and made them fabulously rich. A judicious marriage into the Percy family. And the purchase at knockdown prices of the Bolton Priory Estates, when Henry VIII closed down the monasteries, meant that the Cliffords owned virtually all of Craven. In addition, they owned large tracts of land in Cumberland, Westmorland, the East Riding of Yorkshire and Derbyshire, and the centre of this landed wealth was Skipton. Our look at the Clifford family, which controlled Skipton's fortunes for centuries, is punctuated by interludes in which the head of the family led a quiet life, leaving little mark on history. Such was the role of Henry, the 12th Lord Clifford and 2nd Earl of Cumberland. As the early 19th century historian Dr Whitaker put it, "'Falling upon tranquil times,' He enjoyed his honours without disturbance and without renown. At the coronation of Queen Anne Boleyn in 1533, when Henry Clifford was just 16, he was created a Knight of the Bath, a mark of Henry VIII's temporary delight at his new bride and the growing importance of the Clifford family in the nobility of England, rather than as a reward for service to the crown. And a year later, he was to secure a marriage emphasising the Clifford's rise under the Tudors. The new bride was Eleanor Brandon, a granddaughter of King Henry Seventh and the niece of King Henry Eighth. She was to die in 1547, just a few months after the king, and she bore the earl a girl and two boys, both of whom died in infancy. The earl remarried and his second wife, Anne Dacre, was to provide six children, including two sons. The second Earl may have preferred to stay in Skipton and avoid the politics and intrigue of the Trude court, but in November 1569, politics was thrust upon him. His northern neighbours, the Earls of Westmorland, and Northumberland, and their Catholic followers, became involved in a rebellion to depose the young, new Queen Elizabeth and replace her with the Scottish Queen, Mary. Not for the first time, nor the last, the Cliffords remained loyal to the established monarch and Clifford declared for Elizabeth, raising 1,000 men from his northern lands ready to fight the rebels. The rebels fled to Scotland and Clifford's decisive action was noted by the new Queen. And it was to stand his son in good stead for just two months later, in January 1570, the second Earl was dead at the age of 52. But the new Queen was not to forget the Clifford loyalty. If this second Earl was a somewhat anonymous figure, notwithstanding his decisive actions in the rebellion, the same cannot be said of his son, George, the 3rd Earl of Cumberland. George was to emerge as a hugely charismatic, even romantic figure. Nor was he content to follow his father and stay on his northern estates. They were of immense importance to him, financially, but George was destined to play a central role in the nation's story. A famous painting of George accompanies this podcast on my website, History of historyofskipton.co.uk. It shows George in dark blue Tudor armour decorated with golden stars and partly covered by a gold-trimmed jacket. On his head, he wears an elaborate plumed hat with the Queen's gloves sewn on and he bears a lance to show his position as the Queen's champion. To be selected as the Queen's official champion, the man who would wear her colours in jousting tournaments and challenge all comers, was a high sign of favour. The role still exists and is now hereditary, with the current champion the official standard-bearer of the monarch. He will carry the Union flag when the current Prince of Wales is crowned. Back in the Tudor era, the role carried a bit more prestige, although it was still largely ceremonial. And if you go to Holy Trinity Church today, you cannot miss George's large tomb at the side of the altar. This tomb was opened in 1803, and among those present was the historian Dr Thomas Whitaker, who I've already mentioned. Evidently, George's body was well preserved and the face bore a strong resemblance to his paintings, although Whittaker remarks, All his painters, however, had the complacence to omit three large warts upon the left cheek. When his father died, George was only twelve, and he headed south for education as a ward of the Earl of Bedford and to attend the royal court. A sign of the Clifford family of importance occurred when Queen Elizabeth attended his wedding in June 1577 to one of Bedford's daughters, Margaret. Alas, this was destined to be an unhappy marriage of convenience and the couple spent much of their life apart. In 1579, George came of age and he inherited the Clifford Lands. And George threw himself into administering his large estates from Skipton Castle. He served on the Queen's Council of the North and was on standby to fight against Scotland, charged with raising 300 men for a crisis which never came but often threatened. But by 1583, George had, it seemed, grown bored with life in Skipton and he moved to London to be close to the Royal Court. While he would have become immersed in the political rivalries and factions of the court, he was not averse to the role of a Tudor playboy. We know that George won a gold bell worth £50 for taking part in a horse race, and he threw himself into jousting combats. The advent of artillery had moved warfare on significantly, and the days of heavy, armour-laden knights charging into battle was just about over. But the ceremonial sport of jousting was to linger on for a few years yet, limited to the fabulously rich. Its years were numbered, but for the chance to show off in front of the great and good, it was unsurpassed in the Tudor court. And George would have needed a strong suit of armour. Within living memory, in 1559, King Henry II, the King of France, had been killed while taking part in a jousting tournament, when a large splinter of wood from a lance had penetrated through the eye socket of his helmet, through the monarch's eye and into his brain. It took the king several days to die in agony, while royal surgeons frantically tried all sorts of primitive surgery To try to cut the wood from out of his head. Not surprisingly, the French kings never again took part in jousting, and the gruesome story would have been widely told across the channel. George's taste for the high life was expensive, and he quickly exhausted the cash he had. He took out loans and even sold off property to cover his living costs. He sold family lands in Derbyshire piece by piece over the coming years. Craven was largely immune, the only recorded sale being land in Arncliffe and Hawkswith. But other land followed, such as Maltby in South Yorkshire, Idle near Bradford, and the area around Broomfleet on the banks of the River Humber, which had been in the Clifford family since Robert, the first Baron Clifford, more than 300 years previously. Professor Richard Spence, the expert on Skipton Castle, puts the level of his debts at £3,900 and commented, Considering his estate income, it is fair to say that by 1586, the Earl could barely have covered the £600 a year interest on his known debts, let alone make provision for his current living costs, had he not constantly deferred satisfying his creditors. As the debts mounted, George decided to turn to a spectacular way of making money quickly. Piracy. Hollywood has coloured our images of the pirate. Swashbuckling Errol Flynn's or charismatic Johnny Depps have portrayed them as outlaws with no place in society. In fact, the Elizabethan pirate was more likely to be a semi-official royal appointment. Privateering, was an independent, anti-Spanish enterprise at sea, legally authorised by the government. It took the form of raids upon the commerce of Spain and her allies and anyone trading with them, either at sea or in ports with the Queen, and government taking a slice of the profits. The most famous of its practitioners was Sir Francis Drake, who famously singed the King of Spain's beard and Earl George was keen to copy his example. It was hazardous to life and an enormous gamble, but if successful, the rewards could be great. To a man like George Clifford, young, reckless, athletic, and greatly in debt, it offered the chance of riches, honour, and royal favour. In June 1586, Earl George... Sold off more land and took out loans to finance the purchase and fitting out of two ships, which were na- renamed the Red Dragon, which is the Clifford emblem, and Bark Clifford. But before he set off on his expedition, there was time to be a commissioner, a sort of royal witness cum juror, at the trial of Mary, Queen of Scots and was present as a witness to her execution in February 1587, preparing a report for Queen Elizabeth. Then he was off on his pirate expedition. But it was a huge disappointment. Few merchant ships were encountered, and those that were had been poorly stocked. The Earl had gone deeper into debt. It was at this point that the Cliffords once again became caught up in the affairs of the nation. Fifteen eighty eight was the year of the Spanish Armada, and Earl George was keen to be in the thick of the action. He joined the Elizabeth Bonaventure, a royal warship with thirty-six guns, which was captained by George Raymond. The relationship between Clifford, the high-ranking courtier, and Raymond the professional sea captain, seems to have caused a little friction. Raymond, paid out of the Royal Purse, was in charge of running the ship, while Clifford was one of the fleet's commanders, and as such he attended the Council of War. Clifford was on board when the Bonaventure was in the thick of the action when the armada was attacked and suffered heavy casualties off the Belgian coast. It was pursued north and off Flamborough Head, the Navy's Admiral, Lord Howard, held a meeting in which he and his six commanders, Sir Francis Drake, John Hawkins, Martin Frobisher, Thomas Fenner, Lord Sheffield and Clifford, the Earl of Cumberland, declared that they would pursue the Armada to the Scottish Highlands. In fact, a great storm blew up and the Armada was further scattered leaving the English fleet to turn south. Clifford disembarked at Harwich on August the 7th and dashed to Tilbury, where the Queen was waiting with troops in case of a Spanish invasion. There, he delivered letters from Howard announcing the defeat of her Spanish enemies. And it was at this point that he supposedly picked up the Queen's bejeweled glove when she dropped it. And... Such was her delight at the news of the Spanish Armada's defeat, she allowed him to keep it. He sewed it proudly into his hat, forming the centrepiece of the portrait which I've mentioned above. Clifford's stock was at its zenith, and on October 4th, 1588, a grateful queen granted him a commission to roam the seas and seize goods from Spain and merchant ships trading with that country. In fact, this second expedition was another fruitless but costly debacle, which only increased the Earl's debts. But it didn't prevent the Earl preventing a third expedition. It was while on this expedition that the Earl's son and heir, Francis, died, followed by, a few weeks later, the birth of his daughter Anne. Two events which were to have significant repercussions, for Skipton and the Cliffords. Clifford finally arrived back in England on December 30th, 1589, with prizes including spices, sugar and captured merchant ships and weaponry. The Queen took her share, but the third expedition, and a fourth soon afterwards, turned a profit, and Clifford was able to reduce his debts. The year 1590 was to mark vividly just how high the Clifford stock had arisen, for in November he was appointed the Queen's champion. As I've stated, this was a purely ceremonial honour. At the pageants, attended by and evidently enjoyed by the Queen, the champion would wear the Queen's colours, challenging all comers to a joust. To be selected for such an honour was a sign of quality, popularity and a dashing brio. Of course, one had to be a skilled horseman, successful in the joust, although it's probable that convention dictated that the opponent was not trying too hard to beat the Queen's favourite. The joust was a spectacle rather than a contest, but as such the champion needed to be splendidly dressed, a show-off perhaps. Clifford, commissioned his expensive suit of armour and he was so pleased with it and his role that he had the court painter Nicholas Hilliard, who did famous pictures of Queen Elizabeth, paint his portrait wearing his armour. A measure of royal favour is the teasing letter which the Queen sent him in which she called him a person of roguish condition. In the flirtatious way she had of talking with close, dashing male friends, she warned him not to let her liking for him reach the ears of her other royal favourite, the Earl of Essex. And forever after, she referred to Clifford as My Rogue. He became the third Clifford to be appointed a Knight of the Garter, to add to his Knight of the Bath title. Earl George, in 1590, was planning his fifth pirate expedition. Naturally, the cost of fitting out his ships required huge loans to be raised, and the Earl plunged his estates deeper into Hock, including, this time, Skipton. This final voyage had great initial success, but the sum of the ships he captured were recaptured by the Spanish as they were making home and the really rich prize remained elusive. The proceeds did not meet the investment, and his debts spiralled to £9,500. At one point, he had to scurry back to Skipton to personally collect rents and rush back down south to pay off the crew. A six-expedition quickly followed in the spring of 1592. There was no doubt... That there was royal backing for this venture. Letters patent, which is an open letter issued by the monarch formally granting a right, were issued instructing the earl to annoy the king of Spain and his subjects, and to burn, kill, and slay as just and needful cause shall require. But Clifford missed the sixth expedition, the first and last he was to miss because bad winds delayed the start and he was recalled to court. Ironically, in his absence, the flotilla finally hit the jackpot when it cornered and captured a massive Spanish galleon, the Madre de Dios, 1,600 tonnes in weight, laden with jewels, spices, cloths and valuables worth an estimated half a million pounds in those times. Alas, for Clifford, his absence meant much of the booty was stolen by his men. Moreover, as he was not directly involved in its capture as commander, but merely as a financier who had been at home, there were other legal claims on the estate. Professor Spence reckons the Earl was left with approximately £36,000 of the proceeds, a fraction of what it might have been had he actually set sail and been able to personally supervise the disposal of the Madre de Dios fortune. The capture of such a ship caused a stir. It was probably the biggest ship ever seen in England when it was brought into port. It certainly caused a stir opening the eyes of speculators that the riches of the Indies were beyond their best expectations. And eight years later, the East India Company was formed with its governor, George Clifford. The role of governor would be a company chairman as a modern equivalent. This company was to go on to conquer and then rule India until it was taken under the wing of the British government, nationalised in effect, in 1858. Clifford managed to pay off his debts and a seventh expedition came, but this failed to hit the jackpot and his debts slowly increased again. In 1597, he decided to change tactics and rather than hiring ships, he decided to build his own. He called it the Scourge Malice and it was launched by the Queen herself. It was a big ship, 600 tonnes in weight and recognised as one of the finest in the country but it was expensive to build and maintain. The Earl was in great debt and only constant juggling of mortgages on his lands allowed him to keep his head above water. By 1598, apart from Silsden and Barden, every other part of the earl's great craven estate was mortgaged, including Skipton itself. But this final expedition was the apogee of Clifford's naval career as he captured the island of Puerto Rico. The earl landed 700 men on a beach nine miles away from the capital fortress of San Juan. After a gruelling march, Clifford, in his dazzling armour, led his men in a night attack against the guns and muskets on the defensive walls and was lucky to escape with his life. He tripped and fell into the water and could not get up due to the weight of his armour. He swallowed far more seawater than was good for him before his men realised his peril and hauled him up. He was half drowned and vomiting copiously from the seawater in his stomach. The attack was a failure, and 50 of Clifford's men were killed or wounded. But he was lucky. The following day, the Spanish abandoned their posts and surrendered, wrongly thinking that this was just the advance party and a greater force was on its way. Clifford, had succeeded where Sir Francis Drake himself had failed, capturing the most important fort in the Caribbean and one that had been considered impregnable. At first, Clifford ruled the island of Puerto Rico as the governor and there was an intention of it becoming an English base. However, his men were struck by an onslaught far more damaging than the Spanish guns. Dysentery. Half his men were stricken and so few left that they were easily prey to counter-attack from a Spanish fleet or arising from the Spanish colony on the rest of Puerto Rico. Clifford sent letters back to England requesting that Queen Elizabeth send a force which would establish Puerto Rico as a British colony. But she was short of funds and facing problems at home. Clifford was forced to evacuate and return home. Clifford had yet again brought relatively little back for his investors. True, he had prestige, honour and a reputation, but his debts were once again massive. He was never to venture to see again the last years of his life being taken up with government and commerce. You may remember that Clifford was a founder and the first chairman of the East India Company. It had been given a monopoly of trade with all countries to the east of South Africa and to the west of America. Clifford had the good sense to sink whatever cash he could muster into the venture and it was to prove far more profitable for the family than his piracy adventures and it was to help him and his descendants pay off his debts. He was one of the Queen's inner circle, still her official champion, respected for his experience, reliability and proven military skills and loyalty. When there were rumours of a Spanish attack, it was Clifford who was instructed to prepare the defence of London. And when Elizabeth I died in March 1603, the new king was James I, also the King of Scotland. As the royal champion... Clifford had a duty to ride north to meet him. The new king was escorted to London and paraded around the capital, preceded always by George, carrying the sword of state to signify the authority of the new king. Within a year, James I had concluded a peace treaty with Spain and issued proclamations outlawing privateering by his subjects, and promising the Spanish that there would be the direst penalties against those who persisted in harassing Spain and its allies. George's days on the sea were over, but he was by now a key and trusted member of the establishment. George was given command of the borders between Scotland and England, a position that had been held by some of his ancestors. However, the problem was no longer fear of a Scottish invasion, but to control organised bands of criminals who continued to loot and pillage both sides of the border. Amid all this talk of piracy, military exploits, naval feats, the founding of a hugely important trading company, a royal champion, a key member of the government, you might ask, what relevance did it have for Skipton? True, the Earl was a fascinating character and qualifies for the role of whatever was the Elizabethan equivalent of a modern celebrity. But what effect did this have on Skipton, the seat of his power? George had been an absentee landlord, leaving the governance of his estate, much reduced now to its core around Skipton and Westmorland, to his brother Francis. So the end of his sea days coincided with a realisation that something had to be done to curb his debts. The East India Company helped. Even so, in 1602, George set off for Skipton, intending to appoint commissioners to reassess the value of his lands and revise upwards the amount he could charge his many tenants for rent. Skiptonians knew what was coming one of his staff, Thomas Ferrand, wrote from Skipton to the Earl. It is a wondering to hear the murmuring of the people and especially the poorer sort. What fear possesses them? The end of the Elizabethan era was one of high inflation and the rents had been static, many of them dating back decades without any increase. The landlord could top up his income by charging something called entry fees. When a tenant died and a new tenant, often the old one's son, took over the land, the landlord, George Clifford, could demand an entry fee, a one-off payment. The reason Ferrand described the poor as particularly fearful was they they did not have the money to pay entry fees and therefore their security of tenure was less reliable. George tried to raise money quickly by offering to give up his right to entry fees in return for lump sum payments. However, his immediate problems were eased but life was made difficult for his heirs. The new... Leases, with no entry fees, produce a one-off payment up front and reduced rents in future. Three quarters of the entry fines, this lucrative if unreliable source of income, were gone forever. In the autumn of 1605, having spent much of the previous four years in Skipton sorting out the rents he was owed, George felt able to return to London and there he fell ill of the bloody flux, perhaps dysentery and perhaps cancer. He knew his end was nigh and he put his affairs in order, writing letters to his estranged wife for the first time in many years. He died on October the 29th aged 47. His body was brought back to Skipton for burial in Holy Trinity, a service which took place on December the 29th. His daughter, Anne, was to create the magnificent tomb which still stands alongside the main altar of the church, Skipton's very own pirate. So what then is the verdict on George Clifford, 3rd Earl of Cumberland? For Whitaker the clergyman, historian of Craven, writing in the 18th century, the defects singled him out as a wastrel whose death was a boon to his family. He wrote, George Earl of Cumberland was a great but unamiable man. If we trace him in the public history of his times, we see nothing but the accomplished courtier, the skilful navigator, the intrepid commander, the disinterested patriot. If we follow him into his family, we are immediately struck with the indifferent and unfaithful husband, the negligent and thoughtless parent. We are surrounded by memorials of prodigality, mortgages and sales, inquietude and approaching want. He set out with a larger estate than any of his ancestors, and in a little over 20 years he made it one of the least. Fortunately for his family, a constitution only originally vigorous gave way at the age of 47 to hardship, anxiety and wounds. George may have been more in tune with modern tastes. He would now be lauded as a celebrity, a daredevil, a maverick, an adventurer. The modern view is much more sympathetic. Surely he would have made a far better dinner guest than his dowdy, pedantic daughter Anne, whose memory arouses greater approval in these parts. For all the fripperies of being the Queen's champion and having a spectacularly gaudy suit of armour, he left two important legacies to the nation. Firstly... He was instrumental in undermining the King of Spain's dominance of the trade with South America and staking out a policy of British involvement in the Caribbean, which was of immense future importance to the country's economy. Secondly, he was the driving force behind the foundation and prosperity of the East India Company, again of vital importance to the British economy as it sparked the conquest and exploitation of India's riches for his country. Against this must be set the impoverishment of the Clifford lands. Skipton was to remain the power base, but the Clifford fortunes were on the wane. His brother, nephew and daughter, who were all to inherit from him, were condemned to wage a constant war to fend off creditors. This may have been no bad thing for local people who were able to shake off their ties to the Clifford Bailiffs. Join me next time when we reach the Civil War when Skipton was the last royal stronghold in the North to fall. Thank you for listening.
0: fifty thousand dollar cash prize playing Chumbo Casino online.
1: I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true.
0: Chumbo Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.